0: This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonization and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR Podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting the new book, Learning to Learn by Knowing Your Brain, a guide for students by Hector Ruiz Martin. In this book, Martin explains in a simple and entertaining way how human beings' brains learn and what students can do to take advantage of their full potential. Among other things, readers will learn that everyone can improve at learning, no matter their starting point. The benefits to students who consciously build knowledge of effective learning strategies. And the fact that each time you learn something, your brain actually changes its structure. You can get Learning to Learn by knowing your brain now via the John Catt website. That's where you can also find my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teacher. Again, that's via the John Cat website, via Woods Lane in Australia or on Amazon or other online booksellers. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goldburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44%
0: 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Jeff Robin. Jeff is a teacher of 27 years and is a foundation faculty member of High Tech High in San Diego and remained an active collaborative teacher at High Tech High till 2017. In this episode, we discuss Jeff's fantastic book, Teach Like an Artist, in which he outlines a vast collection of the art projects that he coordinated at High Tech High, the wonderful work of his students and what he learned about how to be an art teacher and a teacher more broadly In these cross-curriculum projects through this rich experience. I was initially put in touch with Jeff following my discussion with Gwyn Harry of XP School back in episode 70 of the ERRR podcast. This is as Jeff and Gwyn are great friends and similarly driven about creating fantastic learning experiences for students. Jeff sent me his book and I was blown away by the quality of the work that his students had done and the passion and impact of Jeff's teaching. This is a wide ranging discussion touching on everything from effective instruction, modeling, chunking of tasks, what it takes to run effective projects, field trips and excursions, the role of high art in schools, teacher collaboration, and much more. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Jeff as much as I did. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insights, stimulation, and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest education tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas of education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Jeff Robin, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, pleasure, pleasure, Jeff. really enjoyed your book, Teach Like an Artist, Jeff. And I, I wanted to start today with a, with a pretty simple question, but probably a tricky one to answer. You know, why art teaching? What is it that art can do that other subjects can't? Uh,
1: well. It- I taught science. I taught Spanish. I taught English, journalism, special ed, photography. And when I got to high tech high, I realized all these subjects are in art and turns out math too. I never actually taught math, but I enjoy it within my subject area. And the idea that art is that subject where people show what they've done. They show their understanding. So, in my art class kids wrote they they made books they they uh made um they made math projects they they made physics explanations they had to put all these things in so really art is just how it's always been it's expressing what people what people have learned so really teaching art is is just teaching and it's weird the way things got separated out and I realized that pulling them all back together again was a great way to do it. You, you do have to work though. Like I took a, a physics class online years ago before online was big and, and we did a project and the lady was, uh, the professor was, she was so excited. She's like, this was the best project any students ever had. She said, you really should think about being a physics major. And then I had to tell her I was a 45-year-old teacher and it was 10 years ago. And it
0: was, she was a little disappointed, but she appreciated it. That's great. Okay, that's really interesting that you, that you see art as, an, as having the ability to kind of cover all subjects and we'll get into that kind of interdisciplinary nature of it uh, a little bit later. Maybe I'll switch the question around a little bit. What do you think art can do for students that other subjects potentially can't?
1: Just saying the word art or arts and crafts, it's takes kind of like the pressure off. Although I, I mean, as an artist, I don't feel like. The pressure's ever taken off, but the way that people feel about it, and mostly kids think, oh, this is something that I'm not going to be wrong. I'm not going to be yelled at. I'm not going to be told to sit down and do this. They're going to, they have agency. So art is typically thought of as a subject where there's more agency than, uh, you know, memorizing the periodic table.
0: Okay. Uh Do you want to say something else? There?
1: Oh no! But unfortunately, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you'll get. um, And I know I visited England, and they use this phrase "another brick in the wall." And I said, "Well, I remember that Pink Floyd record, but I didn't really know what it meant." And what they were, what they meant was that a, a teacher that's another brick in the wall that is angry and forceful and say, "You have to do it this way." And so, some art teachers get to that point in their. Frustration of a teaching, where they start to, you know, they start to expect everybody to do just what they say, and for everybody to be the same. And when a teacher feels like I need my all, all my students to do this, or I want everybody to be like this, that is when you got to go to your boss and say I quit. I'm going to go do something else because mm-hmm. the whole point is that everybody's different. Mm. And for teachers to meet the kids where they're at and see where they go instead of trying to make people
0: something they're not. Mm. How did you, um, how did you, it sounds like you've had a varied career in teaching. How did you find yourself teaching art? Um,
1: well, I always made art and I, I was always somebody that made things. Um, but I was a, I was a poetry and, and journalism major in in and, and a yearbook aficionado in high school. And, and when I went to college, I studied English and writing. And I thought that would be something that I was interested in. And and then every once in a while, they would say, hey, you, you have an art, you have a passion for art. Why don't you teach art? Because they were always looking for art teachers. And so I kind of like most things in life, I fell into it. Um you know, ass backwards, and then I went and got a master's in fine arts and realized how much fun I was having and um and that's where I ended
0: up. interesting, so you didn't actually do kind of art formally until quite late in your career. Well, I mean, I started teaching when
1: I was twenty two and i um and I was always doing photography and things like that, and working with my hands as a carpenter. but I really didn't take. I took maybe one or two art classes, but I went and got a master's in fine arts and I kind of talked my way in. They actually liked me because I knew how to teach. So they, they passed all the freshman classes off on me that they didn't want to teach. And so then I went and got a master's in fine arts. And that was, that was where I learned to teach because I was watching these great art teachers that had been teaching for 30 years, um, and, the, and the, their practice was was perfect. Um,
0: what were some of the it, things that they did?
1: Well, that's my stick. It's do the project yourself first. And always do whatever you're going to do with the students. You need to do first, even if you've done it a thousand times. I had a professor, Ken Rignall, at uh, California College of Arts and Crafts. And he was a printmaking teacher. And I would come in every morning at 730 because... That was my job to be a, a grad student. And I came in and he would be there going over his notes, doing doing the um, demonstration before the students came in. And I came in laughed, and I said, Ken, what are you doing? You've done this a thousand times. He's like, well, I haven't done it today. I don't know that these chemicals are right. I don't know if it's going to help the students. And the only way I know for sure that my teaching is going to, land where it needs to is to do the project myself first show an exemplar show the students um you know the different ways that i did it and then let them figure stuff out on their own as well and i then took that and i taught photography next and then i i uh took that and and i taught ap art and special ed. And I realized that if I can show an exemplar, that, that, that just like we have this cartoon in in the U.S. I don't know if you have peanuts the peanuts cartoons yep. and the kids when the adults speak it it just sounds like wah 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 because the kids don't know what you're talking about. I go in and the, and my vocabulary is different, my slang is different, my idioms are different. But if I show them an exemplar and say, "Look, I want you to get to this point. I want you to get to like." This is what I did with the prompt I'm I'm giving you. And I want yours to be better than mine. And if you can see something, and that explains so much to the kids. And then instead of lecturing, you do demonstrations, like how I figured out how to mix these colors, how I figured out how to uh, make a composition. And it's just 15 minutes. They can ask questions. And then I spend the whole rest of the period, much like my professor did, helping each student. And I would have two-hour classes where I would just go around and help each kid, like work. Like when you have a job somewhere, your boss, if he's an effective or she's an effective boss, they don't stand up and talk at the employees for two hours. They won't get anything done. You have to let people do the work. And as a teacher, you need to be there to help guide them. If you lecture for an hour and every day, and then you send them home to do the work, I I mean, I have two kids 20 and 23 and they would go to, to high school and then even in college. And they're like, I don't understand. And I'm like, well, I wasn't in the lecture. I don't understand what your teacher wants either. Please go to their office hours. I'm in the States. We pay a lot of money for college. And I'm like, go to office hours and ask your teachers, what were you talking about? And, and that's what you have to do as a teacher. And, um, it no matter what grade you teach. You need to be there to help the kids while they're doing their work. You, your job is not to talk to them and and entertain them. I mean, I, there's nothing I enjoy more than as you as this hour will go by. I love to talk. I love to hear myself speak. But that wasn't my job, and I learned that, um, you know, fourth or fifth year in. I said before, I wasn't a good teacher for 11 years. I taught for 11 years, but I sucked. I was awful because it was all about me and I needed to change it to be all about the kids.
0: Mm, an important lesson. I was interested before I said, you know, what, what can art do that other subjects can't? You said it kind of takes the pressure off uh, as soon as you say something's art or arts and crafts. Um, your book is entitled Teach Like an Artist. What happen, What does it mean to teach like an artist?
1: Well, it doesn't mean be an art teacher, and it doesn't mean um, do art in every class. But the habits of mind of an artist are, artists are influenced by the world around them. Artists transform ideas into their own creation. Artists live, work, and play art. All of their life experience could and should be seen in their artwork. Artists communicate through visuals, symbols, sounds, writing, and tactile experiences. Artists don't stop working. A good artist evolves and is constantly communicating. And then I like to say, now replace artists with teacher. Wouldn't you want to have a teacher that's always looking to figure out a better way to teach something? Wouldn't you want a teacher that's so excited about their subject area and and disseminating their subject area to all these other students and hopefully the world will see what their students have learned. Uh, wouldn't you want a teacher that likes to play with their subject area, likes to see how far they can go? And wouldn't you want a, your teacher to be constantly evolving? And I thought of this one day, like uh, people said, aren't you working too hard? You, you're so obsessive with this. And I'm like, I'm an obsessive person. I don't have a choice. I'm either all in or all out. And I said, but when you make art, you have to be this way. And they said, but you're teaching. And I'm like, no, no, no. The teaching is my art. It is my art form. The kids were my medium. And I wanted to see what I could make using, you know, 60 kids a semester and see all the things that they could make all the way that they could grow. And I didn't, you know, I didn't call it my own art. My house is filled with art that my students made, but it's a, it's, it's a similar thing. It's, it's you need to be obsessed with teaching to be great at it. And, and, and when it's difficult because it's a hard job, and it's mm. it's not going to last. It it won't last a whole lifetime. People that taught for forty years, I guarantee you, they have they have a, a a file cabinet full of worksheets that they made thirty years ago. To keep teaching the way I did, I mean, seventeen years was enough, and it certainly was enough for my wife. When I said I think I'm gonna quit, she's like, "Oh, thank God!" Like. I don't
0: know. Um, that's great, and I think that that uh, that framing of you know to be a really good teacher, you need to be obsessed with it. I think. I mean, I think that's true in all areas of life. If you want to be a good anything, like you know, I've, I saw a nutritionist recently, and um, they weren't they weren't obsessed with it. As but my next door neighbor is also a nutritionist, and she is obsessed with it. And I and I know she spends her free time, you know, like. Reading articles and I'm um, going to conferences and things like that, and it's only that kind of level of obsession that really leads to the true expertise, I think. Um, so, but I think you no, know, no one on the pod has really talked about the role of obsession in building expertise before, uh, and I think, yeah, it's a it's a really inter- interesting point.
1: And, and it's not healthy. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good idea, but I mean, I would take my. Kids and my wife, and in the summer times, and every vacation, and we would go to every museum. We would see architecture. I took them to this little cave in Astoria, uh, in Astoria, Spain, and my three-year-old held a Neanderthal bone just so we could go in and see the cave paintings. And 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 they've gotten these great experiences. And uh, and now they're both into the arts. They both make things. They both. have that richness in their lives a richness that I tried to do with my students I took them places I took them to Rome and to paris and New York and San Francisco and that was the craziest place to take kids because other places are 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 you know structured and San Francisco was just wild
0: <laughs> mm. okay. so we've talked a little bit about um and I, I am keen to come back to that idea of trips a little bit later in the podcast if we don't run out of time Jeff um we've talked a little bit about the idea of art what art can do in terms of taking the pressure off students letting them explore what it means to teach like an artist the context in which you were teaching though was a particularly interesting one you taught at high tech high which many people have heard lots of things about some some people have a you know a rosy rosy view of it some people not so um could you tell us a little bit about high tech high so um like anything in education, it's a pendulum and it swings
1: back and forth. When we started High Tech High, we were going to be a project based learning school where the students learn by making projects in multiple disciplines so i was paired up with we we would actually choose who our teams were like i would say hey i want to do a project using um trig to make uh, bentwood furniture and a physics teacher is like oh i've been wanting to do that forever and so we got together and we did this and so for a semester a student would go from my class to their class sometimes we would collaborate by um you know, they would bring the actual thing they're working on in my class to the math class or to the humanities class and then back, or sometimes we would be doing it at parallel and then putting it together. And, um, I have little videos about this on my website and, uh, one that's peanut butter cup collaboration where you t- have two great things and you put it together. And then, um, that ages me cause there was a commercial like in the seventies <laughs> about that. And, um, and and then the other one is um, is the other one is where you you go from one class and you keep doing the same project um, you do the same project with two different teachers, and that's how we started. Our idea was that we wouldn't have textbooks. We the students would the teachers would develop. And it would be a teacher run school where the teachers develop their own curriculum. And it was a beautiful idea. Uh, John Dewey wrote about it 120 years before, or 100 years before we did it. And and it was just, it was like a very heady time. And we were really excited about it. And as we grew, um, we did not, just like John Dewey predicted, we we didn't indoctrinate the teachers into what we were trying to do. We would we were what we intended to do was something that was you needed to be very obsessive. And when you get new teachers coming in that weren't part of the beginning, it was difficult for them to to um to meet to the expectations we wanted to. And also there were young teachers that were doing this for a living and they just didn't have the time um, to raise a family, to work for less money, and to develop these projects. Somebody like me, I had already taught for eleven years before I went there, and it was like my dream that I could teach whatever I wanted. and And for some people, it was great, but for most people, they they couldn't last for more than 20 years or so doing that. And so it's a different school now. And I, and my assertion is it's okay that it's a different school. Schools shouldn't stay the same. And maybe it'll come back. Maybe there'll be more projects, interdisciplinary projects, or maybe it'll go in another direction. But to hold on to the past, I mean, I hold on to the past, but what I really miss is being young. and 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 I can't do anything about that.
0: <laughs> although there is lots of research uh, coming out about longevity jeff so there's there may, there may be hope for you yet <laughs> um that's that's i mean that's really interesting because you kind of painted a picture of you talk about it as, as a heady time um and i can imagine you know all these passionate teachers who are as you were really obsessed uh with teaching and seeing teaching as their art form as you so so beautifully put it earlier um and then and then it was really interesting how you also talked about how, you know, schools shouldn't stay the same. Uh, I'm curious, at the same time, we also want to create kind of models and you talked about, you know, exemplars and models earlier about what can, what can be possible and... Um, and I would imagine there is, is value. I personally think so. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts. There's value in actually having things that are models that are also sustainable, so that they can kind of be replicated, and things that are really effective um, can can um, can be spread, and more students can benefit from them. So I'm, I'm curious how you see those two things working together. Is is it is it okay to have these? Is it better or more realistic to just have these? I guess flowers blooming. like in different places based upon um, having small groups of really passionate teachers at the right time in their life who are willing to kind of give over a portion of their time to this in an obsessive way or can we not do that because that kind of draws attention away from creating more sustainable models? I don't know, where where are you at in terms of that? I'm a few years down the track now.
1: I mean, it's something that I'm, I'm obviously not going to get angry, but it was something that I got angry about. Where they said, "Oh, we could replicate this." People Gates came in with his with his money, and he wanted to replicate this all over the world. And and then the people I work with were getting excited, and they said, "Yeah, we'll replicate this." And I'm like, "But you can't do it in your classroom." You, you need to be able to do this. And, and it is a Bloom thing. It is like I was just with a couple of guys that I retired. They retired too a year or two after me. And we loved obsessing over this. And it was this beautiful thing at the time. But you cannot replicate people. And it's all about – my brother always says this. He says it's all about people, people, people. And you can't replicate me and you can't replicate you. And this idea that uh, that that schools can be replicatable, that you could expand it, you're not gonna get the same thing. You went to school too. Remember when you were in school and say, oh, your friends would say, don't take that teacher, take that teacher, he's better. Or don't take her, this other lady's better. She does much cooler stuff. And it's and it's the right time with the right kids with the right teacher is when magic happens and you can't no matter how what Machiavellian uh, plan you could get to get this to be right for everybody it's it's horseshit can I curse I guess I can sure oh it's can. Australia of course I can. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's not possible. And, and anybody that thinks that they can replicate it, they're, they're, they're a fool or they're a liar um, because you cannot replicate people. And that was the thing. When we started the school, the, one of the head people said, you know, well, we'll just hire more teachers. We'll just hire different people. And, 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 and that wasn't the case. You, you can't replace some people some teachers are irreplaceable and then there'll be new teachers that hopefully pop up that are irreplaceable too, but you'll never get that lightning in a bottle forever. And you can't, you can't, you know, plan it in different places and it's just human nature. It's like, um, uh, there was a, a statistician that talked about that, that when you look at statistical, um, canner, I think it was, or, uh yeah it was Cantor's law where you can't quantify human behavior with data. You have to quantify human behavior with interaction and talking to people. Not everybody's the same. We don't want people to be the same. That was the whole point of this. So the the irony of and and also, you know, not every high tech high was the same. There's 16 now and there's 16 totally separate schools. And when people say, oh well that school's good or that school's bad and I, and I always say well why do you say that and the people say well look at the test scores or I, I have a friend that said something about it and and it's just not the case it's um uh, it's it's uh, you know it's kind of like goldilocks you got to find you got to find the right bed you got to find the right porridge for the right kid
0: mm. Th- there's a lot of um you know lots of people listen to these podcasts, you know system leaders, you know, government government people working in the government and so on, um and people who are starting and starting schools, scaling schools, running trusts or groups of schools, and so on. something something that's really interesting to me, thinking about this kind of system level challenges, it's really amazing when schools can pop up that are like what it sounds like you were working within during that kind of those few, beautiful years in the early days of high-tech high that, that you, you hold so dear. Um, at the same time, like you said, that's completely dependent uh, based upon if, – if we, if, if we sec- accept the assumption, um, that's ba- totally dependent on people, people, people and having the right people at the right time of their lives and the right conditions and so on. So, if you were kind of in a situation where you were able to kind of direct schooling systems – I'm not sure if you've thought about this before but like what are the right what what can system leaders do to make should they be just making space for this to happen or are the risks too high and there's going to be too much um, failure or should they be f- uh, pushing more towards standardization like h- how do you see an education system I know you have districts in the US but let's think about a district making space for this but also trying to ensure that students aren't subject to it going wrong
1: well, it, it can always go wrong. And so there's no guarantee in anything in life. I, I came up with this plan a little while ago. And it was this idea where there's a district, you know, say there's 20 schools in the district. And a lot of people want to have traditional drill and kill education, they want to quantify what their kids are doing. They want traditional, you know, I, I know you guys have a lot of International baccalaureate programs in Australia, and I even went there to speak. And I said, "Oh well, how many kids go abroad to school?" And they said, "None." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, why are you doing this?" And but they they want this, you know, stamp on it. They want this guarantee that everybody's going to learn. And so you have schools that do that, and then you ha- and you have teachers that want to work in that those schools, and then you find. Maybe teachers that want to do something more—that's experiential learning, where maybe they go and travel and they do uh, school outside, um, or you do project-based learning. But the teachers need to be the ones that want to do this kind of work. You can't You can't uh, shoehorn somebody into a place that's not going to fit. And the one pure way of finding a teacher that's gonna do something is if they. If they're, that's going to be a good project based learning teacher is if they have something they can show you. If they show up with a stack of science or a stack of history that they've made or, or writing that they've done or art they've done or physics experiments that they've made and they show the, the people, those people are going to be the right teachers. But if somebody shows up with nothing, if they have these ideas, if they have this, it's great to have whimsical ideas, but it's, and it's so funny. It reminds me of, uh, um, there's a saying, uh, there are two kinds of people in this world. Uh, people that think there are two kinds of people and everybody else. And, you know, like, it's, yeah. and so, but I am the people that think there's two kinds of people in this world. There are doers and there are talkers. And, and I, I happen to be both, but doers like talkers because they explain stuff. Talkers, they don't like doers because it makes them look bad. What you need to do, if you're going to start a school where you want kids to make things and to do things, you need to get people that are making things and doing things and value that. Add in the same things is if you want to have a school that's test-based, you need to have teachers that are great at, 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 at scaffolding the information and getting the students to learn it for an hour or more and do good on the test, and then they can forget it. But it's valuable to them. And it's valuable to a lot of people. As you can hear in my sarcasm, it's not valuable to me. But, you know, it's, it's what you need a lot of different schools for different kinds of people. And you need different schools for, you know, like for the parents, for the students, and for the teachers and when we first opened high tech high a bunch of parents were freaked out they're like i can't believe we're sending their kids here and i'm like yeah i can't believe you are either but they did and and then and it really worked out and even now kids get this amazing bump from having this experience they might not have the same kind of uh physical making and traveling and and experience but the kids that go there know how to work with other kids the kids that graduate from high-tech highs they can talk about things they can they can they know how to interact with people they know how to go to their professors they know they believe that they can do anything and so in a sense maybe they don't need to make things made out of steel with me and willed. Maybe they don't need to, you know paint giant murals or make staircases to nowhere. But they're getting what something that that a lot of other kids aren't getting and they're choosing to be there. And so I think that's the to give kids authentic choice, but you have to be honest about it. That's the thing that's missing in education, honesty. People don't want to say it and because if you're honest, people will start to hate you. And mm-hmm. I'm probably being pretty honest on this podcast
0: and um, but I don't I don't really care anymore. so let's go, Jeff. I think that's a fantastic point because and first to suggest that you know all students should learn through project-based learning or all students should learn through uh, more traditional methods. And all teachers should, should teach in one way or the other. Do, I, I, I'm 100% with you. I, and that's something I try to bring out in this podcast a lot. It doesn't make sense and there's actually real strength um, in, div- in diversity. Uh, but what, you've, what you brought us to at the end of that um, little section about for that to happen, we actually need honesty and schools need to stand up and s- school leaders need to stand up and say, this, this is the way this school is going to be run. Uh, and and when, I, when I look at schools who I've visited who are really clear about that, they are the ones that are successful. It was interesting. I visited. Uh, there's a couple of different examples. I visited uh, the self-managed learning college in Brighton or Hull near Brighton in the UK, and I was talking to um to the founder of that school, and and he one of the things he said. I said, you know, what's enabled your school to be successful where others who have tried to do similar things haven't been? And he said, schools fall down when they start to compromise based upon you know parent requests basically if the school leader has a vision and then they try to make everyone happy everything falls apart you need a school leader who's just like this is what we are creating this is the vision you're on the bus or you're not um and I've seen a similar thing in here in Australia. Where a lot of primary schools in Australia are moving, making the move to um, kind of science of reading, and you know, really explicit instruction around reading to make sure that students get a really strong start because we have incredibly low literacy levels, which is uh, a real indictment on our education system. And the schools that have done it really clearly, often a principal comes in and they say, "This is the way we're going." You know, if you want to, if you want to come this journey with us like we'd love to have you but if you don't want to be you should probably go somewhere else now and they do that right at the start and that's the honesty and i think that honesty makes the way, makes way for amazing things to happen
1: i i totally agree and and when you're dishonest you'll get more people upset with you than if you're honest like my kids were when i left high tech high they were still there and they were would end up in a teacher's classroom that that the teacher said they were doing a project and then they weren't doing a project. And I would walk in and I would say, hey, what's up with the project? Oh, well, first we have to learn all this first. And I'm like, so you're going to front load everything. Well, when will you have time to do the project? And they're like, could you not come to my classroom anymore? <laughs> and I was just like, okay. Like, that's one way to handle it. Good for you. Like, um, But it's, it's really tough. And it's hard for people to, you know, they have this dream that everything's going to work out. They have this faith and they think that they have to, keep with something that's not working um and and no matter what because if they backpedal on it that means that they're wrong and that's happening all over the world right now my son uh transferred from he was going to a very um i mean this very uh progressive college um in, in Colorado and he was excited about it cuz he went to four or five hours of class at High Tech High he loved building and making things he loved that intensity and he thought this school is going to be perfect for me and he got there and a couple of the classes were good but the problem was is that the professors They didn't understand how to teach that way. They tried to teach the traditional way by lecturing for four hours. And of course, after three and a half weeks, the classes are only three and a half weeks long, they were exhausted and they couldn't, they just stopped. They just couldn't do anything because talking that much is crazy. What they needed to learn was they needed to understand how to use this system that they were put into. And that's where administrators kind of fall down. They don't want to be too critical. They don't want to hear any problems. And when you get a parent like me, who's paying all this money and i'm saying hey this is supposed to be a progressive thing where the students you know where it's student based and and they're and they run with the project and they fill the time with that and my son's barely doing anything and then and they're just not used to that and i was even told they said well if you don't like it send them somewhere else and so he transferred (laughs) (laughs) i'm like okay Um, not a, not a problem, but that that's the thing. It's, it's like, you can't, if you lie about what you're doing or, or maybe if you're delusional and you think you're doing something that happens too. I mean, assume people are, are ignorant or incompetent before you assume they're evil. And, and I just think that people don't necessarily know what they're doing is not what they're say they're doing in the classroom because you're distracted by a million different things. I mm-hmm. had a dream the other day and I got hired to go back into the classroom and I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, but I have to, get a new credential again. I have to stop my retirement money that I'm getting. And the, and they said, oh, don't worry, you're just going to be proctoring tests. And I was like, oh my God, that's like the worst thing. I'm so bad. And I said this in my dream. I said, I said, but it's a no-win situation. Like if you're too strict with the kids, they say you were picking on them and you didn't let them take the test. Or if you're too light on them and they do badly, they say, well, Jeff didn't care and he let us cheat on the test and I cheated on the wrong guy. And I'm like, I can't do this. And I woke up in a sweat and said, oh, I'm not going back to teaching. (laughs) But that was like my anxiety. I am somebody that can never proctor a state run test because I just don't know. I just can't do it. It's not my thing. I can't be a substitute teacher. And, and it's good to be honest about it. And, you know, as teachers, we want to act like we can do everything. I also was horrible at advisory. I, you know, I cared about what the kids were doing in my class. I cared about what they were making. And I wasn't as engaged in asking about what's happening in their home lives. And, mm. and it's okay not to be good at everything, but you need to know that you're not good at everything. And and that's, that's tough for a teacher.
0: Yeah, it's tough for a teacher, tough for, tough for anyone. And I think that's also something that, you know, to, to really find your place in the world, it's important for students to have a variety of experiences at school and be able to reflect on those experiences so that they can start to learn what they're good at as well and what really resonates for them, what they like to do. Otherwise, they find themselves at 30 or 40 in a career that doesn't match their skills and interests, uh, doing something every day that they hate and not contributing in the way they could and also not feeling fulfilled. So- uh, Every engineer I know. <laughs> yes. Maybe not everyone I know, but uh, <laughs> there definitely some of them. Do it. So, yeah, it, it, it tracks it tracks back and it often is in those professions that are higher status because people are like, oh, I don't know what I'm what I'm good at, but I'm getting high marks. so I should probably become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or something like that. Yeah. And then they, they don't end up having a good time. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include Why Art Teaching? Some reflections on high-tech high, key components of effective project-based instruction, such as doing the project yourself, setting parameters, ensuring time for reflection, pre-work, and the role of excursions and field trips in all of this. The idea of mini-lessons, questions about culture and high art in schools, teacher collaboration, and much more. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to our members-only podcast with special insights in episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR clip requests of your favorite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the e podcast. So, that, I mean, that that kind of brings us back around a little bit to this, to, to the question of, okay, well, if schools work well when people are in them that they're aligned to the kind of organizational goals and if they're in roles that really suit their personal talents and skills and interests, then what what experiences need to occur before that such that they can determine those interests and skills and and areas and and, and so on, Um, which potentially brings us to the idea of project-based learning. So, uh, maybe that's a – hopefully, that's a tenable segue to bring us a little bit back to this idea of PBL and and discussing it in a bit more detail. Um, I'm curious, Jeff, when it comes to ideas about projects to run with students, where do these ideas come from and how do you know if you've got a good one for a project? Well the second part of the question how do you know if you do it
1: have a good one do the project yourself first it's like every single teacher I ever met that was falling apart that things weren't working out and I say show me your exemplar show me what you did and and I was calling it the PhD effect because everybody that came to teach with a PhD never did the project themselves first until I really got them to do it because they said I'll know more than the kids will ever know and and I said yeah totally true except for you won't know it's it's Your subject area is 10% and 90% is communication. So you really have to learn to communicate. I always give props to Emerson College in Boston that taught me about education. And I learned that interpersonal communication, just one person talking to another person is the best way to communicate an idea and see if people understand. But when you're standing in front of 50 people and you're saying stuff, nobody's listening if you ask somebody to read 30 pages they're not going to they're not going to read it unless they know what's in it for them so i i think what
0: was the first part of that question do you remember <laughs> Where do, where do good ideas come from and how to know if okay. you've got a good one? You were addressing the how, how How do you know if yeah, you've got a good one? Yeah, so onboarding?
1: to do it yourself first is a way to figure it out. To Where good ideas come from is but coming from your personal from your personal life. I When we first started High Tech High, we were going to be every buzzword that was in um, Ed Week, uh, that uh, the whole month of of May when we were starting it, like, and so one of the things was personalization, and I was exhausted. I was dopey with all the talk and all the highfalutin things that we were doing, and I said, "Oh, personalization!" I said, "That's great. We should. The kids should." do things that I'm personally interested in. That way I'll be more excited. And everybody looked at me and said, no, 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 personalize it to them. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. But I was on to something because I would have them, if I was into making cutouts of of sculptures, of famous sculptures, and making cutout paintings of them and and doing one from the in the canon of Western art and out of the canon of Western art and write about it, and I showed it to them, and then they did it, and it was something I'm excited about doing or making. The stair project. I love building things. I love making making uh, models, and then and then building really big, absurd structures. And And I got together with the physics teacher, and we said, well, let's do this staircase project. And we were trying to figure out, well, what would the models be like? And so we got dimensional wood um, that was about one-tenth the scale of normal wood. And we were trying to figure it out by using like quadratic equations how to make a staircase. And then we looked down at the end of his table, and his three little kids made these really cool staircases by playing. And we're like, oh. Yeah, they should play first. So the first thing we did was w- him and I made a staircase of one to ten scale model. Then we made a one to five scale model, and then we made a one to one staircase. In fact, I even did it in front of my students. They sat there, and it was kind of scary. Like I was using all these power tools, and they were sitting around in a in like and watching me put together a four. Uh, four steps in a staircase. And and I, and then afterwards, I said, well, what do you think? And they're like, you didn't use the measuring tape. And I'm like, oh, man. I said, I've been cutting wood since I was six years old. I don't need to, but you guys definitely do because I'm paying for the wood. And so, you find out all these things by doing it yourself first. So, we did the, the three steps staircases ourselves first and made the posters that went with it did the math that went with it and the first thing they had they had to do was make a one to ten scale model of a staircase by themselves by playing and then they put math on that then in teams of two they made a one to five staircase by planning it first so they've already made us they already know how to work with wood they get what they're doing and so then they planned it and they made their plan and then in teams of 10 they had to negotiate together figure out what stair they what they were going to build who was going to be the leader what were the plans how much wood they needed and then they had to build it someplace around the school that was not only going to be well built, it was going to add to the community, and it was going to be something interesting. And a couple of them are still up, you know, seven years out, um, or eight years out. And uh, and and that it all came from us being curious, us playing with it, spending time together, not at school. And and coming up with this idea and that was beautiful and I've done other projects with other teachers too. In a sense, you know, like it's kind of cool to have an artist, an art teacher that can do lots of things. But also, I was a terrible partner with some people that were. were, I was partners with this one gal, and she had like a three-year-old kid, and her husband was off working somewhere else, and she got to be my partner, and she hated it. She hated me. She she I caused her to do so much work. And so we weren't good teammates. She had great ideas, and two of the best projects I was ever a part of was because she came up with the idea. She just didn't have the time in her life to to really run with it. And so I was I'm freely admit I'm a crazy person, and I could be a bad partner. I talk too much, I obsess, I call people in the middle of the night because I got an idea, and so I totally get that but
0: the work looked pretty damn good. So, that's great. Um, so, so I'll try to summarize what I heard in terms of the answer. So, the question was, um, where do good PBL ideas come from? That's the first part. And what I heard there is the, the teacher really has to have a passion for it and be excited about it because if the teacher doesn't, that passion can't rub off on the students and they probably also won't have the impetus to really go as deep as they need to to make it quality. So, I think that's I think that's a really powerful um, message. And your interpretation of personalization there is yeah, it has to be personal to the teacher. They have to be passionate about it. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Did you want to say something to that? Well, no,
1: it's just like, it's so, it's so like, we used to call this, well, I call it reclaiming stupidity. When I was in grad school, people would say, oh man, that painting is stupid. And I'd be like, thanks. Because, you know, it's like, it was, it was just authentic. But what? How education has gotten to a point where you're going to send some your child into a classroom to, to learn, to read, and understand English, and to write in English, and it's somebody that doesn't write? Somebody that doesn't show their writing to other people, somebody that isn't really interested in a lot of different literatures, somebody that teaches the same books every year—that's insane. It's like the opposite of the master and apprentice thing. It's like finding some rando person to be the master while your kids are, are being the apprentice for them. It's nuts. You, like, as an art teacher, you have to be an if, for to be an art teacher. You have to be an artist. You can't you know fake it till you make it. And I get that people can speak English and they or they can speak the language or they maybe know a little bit of math, they have a degree in math, but there's a huge difference between loving math and being psyched about math and being psyched on the way to get other people to love math and to understand how it's used in the real world. And then and then somebody that just hands out worksheets. It's um. I always wanted, my wife does finance and she's like, she's the queen of the spreadsheet. She, she makes everybody's like, Oh, she makes the best models. And I had her come in and do models with students and talk about models, like on, on Excel spreadsheets to explain how much wood they were using and what they would need and to work with optimization. Cause I was telling them, yeah, this is calculus. and, and, and it was so fun to have. Uh, she came in and did this, and the kids are like, "I've never seen somebody so excited about using a spreadsheet." I said, "There's a lot of people out there like it," and um, and and so if you're excited about and passionate about your subject area and getting other people excited about it too, you're going to do fine. And this is in any kind of teaching, um, but you wouldn't send your 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 kid to learn how to be a baker at a auto parts repair shop. So it's kind of no duh. Like, Mm. I don't know what happened in our society where we thought, Oh, we'll just throw any adult in there and it'll be fine. Then it's daycare and daycare Mm. is fine. And you need daycare. The daycare aspect of education is so important. And and I totally get it. I mean, but it's not something I want to do. I'm um, being daycares. I don't, I can watch my own kids. I don't want to watch somebody else's. And so there is the problem with a lot of teachers. They, they have a passion and they want to work with that passion with kids. And then there's some teachers that would like to do daycare mm-hmm. and, but still get paid, you know, a living wage. And so it's a very, we built this wobbly goblin as a society, as you pointed out, there are all these politicians trying to do the right thing and, and you just kind of have to be honest and do the right thing instead of and say it's not great for everybody. There's always going to be somebody that needs something different. And hopefully they find it before they turn 38.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah, So yep. coming back to that, what, where do good ideas come from? The passion, as you've just reinforced there, and how do you know if you've got a good one? Do the project yourself first. That's right. Were, were there any times, Jeff, when you didn't do the project yourself first? And what um, happened? There were times that I did the project myself first and I
1: failed and it didn't work and we did it anyway. And guess what happened? Nothing.
0: What's, a, what's an example of that?
1: <laughs> so like I did the project myself first and it just went sideways. It was like a, a total mess. Um, for, all, I want, you know, like how was teachers, the project? Oh, it was called, um, it was called, uh it was like make art, about physics or make physics about art. And the project I made was these wheels spinning around and it was going to have like a ratio thing. And I screwed it all up. Some of the kids, some of their projects are still up at high tech high, but I didn't do the project successfully myself. My two teaching partners didn't do it successfully themselves. We got finished at the last possible minute. And I would say about a, Third of the kids didn't get their projects done, and to me, I just I have a simple demand that everybody learns something and everybody does a good job. Sorry, and you know it's not when people say, "Oh, one kid learns." I know. I'm like, everybody has to. So we screwed it up, and then I sat down with them, and the second semester we did this analog flash for Windows, and so it was analog. These these machines that kids made to fit in the windows of the school and we planned it out i made a box myself first that showed um that showed uh uh, what was it you know like with pulleys it was uh, uh levers and pulleys to show the difference in weight and how hard things pull i forget the name the proper name for that anyway um And then we showed the students that, and then we gave them a timetable. They had to figure out what they were interested in. They had to figure out who their teammate was going to be. And they built these science experiments that were in the windows of all the school. And they had to be done by spring break. And then they had to make a book about it. And then they had to teach each other about it. And we even gave them a, they even wrote a test and they tested each other on each other's boxes. And then like, um, like I remember a semester later, one of them, We got grabbed one of them because we had visitors at the school. And I said, tell them about a box that's not yours. And he's like, oh, my God, I know so many of these things. And and because we planned it out, um, I went to regular teaching school. I I went to the Point Loma Nazarene College. And they say, you tell the kids what you're going to tell them, uh, what they're going to learn. You have them do something that they learn it. And then you stop early enough before the end of the class period to talk about what they've learned and for them to h- answer questions and for you to wrap it up and that's what we did so there is a there is a place for traditional education in project-based learning and that's in the project management aspect of it so i i really you know i always give them props too because they taught me to be a good teacher if i did what they told me to do and sometimes i didn't And
0: I say bad words and they told me not to curse, but I curse all the time, but I try not to. Jeff, you talk then a little bit about the idea of project management. And so, I want to riff on that a little bit more. One of your kind of bits of advice in the book about running effective projects was plan and let go. And I'll just read a little excerpt from, from the book now. We built a timeline that students had to follow. Two two weeks of development, seven weeks of building, three weeks of studying each other's work. And a final example, we also had weekly check-ins with points attached as in grade points so that students knew we were serious about their progress. We were very controlling because we wanted to get all of the groups finished by the deadline. I'm wondering how, how you actually kind of supported students through this structured process to ensure that they actually did stay on track?
1: So, it's much, I mean, I've had the luxury of actually having a job outside of education. I worked at a cabinet shop. I worked for a printmaking shop. I've worked in restaurants. I've been a bartender. So, I know that, like, when at four o'clock the bar opens, I have to have clean glasses with no lipstick on it, everything backed up, new kegs, everything has to be ready for the customer to come in and just seamlessly drink the night away. And somehow that kind of, behavior was frowned upon in education that you that that it's not okay to to manage it you want you want the kids to figure out the management on their own but if you go in elementary schools and you see kids when the teacher says now get in groups of 3 they can't do it in kindergarten they have to practice doing that and the same thing with work so i treated my classroom like it was a factory and the kids Unlike a factory where they all make the same things, they all had to make something and they had to make what they thought was important and how they solved the prompt. So we we did project management. I didn't get up and teach in the traditional way. I almost did air quotes. I didn't get in and do the traditional lecturing because it wasn't about me. It was about what they were making. So I spent the time I would say something, bring kids together. Maybe we would go around the room and everybody would say what they were doing that day, and then we would go and do it. Maybe some other kid's doing something similar, and they want to get together and work on it, or they'll see where everybody else is. And then one day a week, I would sit down and formally meet with them and say, you know, what are you doing? Well, what did you do last week? And I would write it down. And these are the things you said you would do last week, and you did some of them, but not all of them. And let's write down what you're doing next. And I got pushback, but the kids, the kids that leaned forward and leaned into it knew that there was an accountability. They had to get done what they were they said that they were gonna get done. And that's just like every job everywhere else, other than in education. Education's the only place where you could say You know, we didn't get anything done, but the kids learned a lot, and and or or you know like it's so it's so hypocritical to say, oh well, the process was good, that just the result didn't work out, and I'm like, when in life. Is the process so good, so great, that you have nothing to show for yourself at the end? I said, I think if you have something really great to show for yourself and understanding, it doesn't have to be a painting. It could be a play. It could be a presentation. It could be a book. It could be a map. It could be anything that's good. And then it usually has a great process. But I do not believe there's such a thing as a great process, but then it, then it producing nothing. It just, it it just, it's antithetical to like education, to the world, to this. And yeah, I'm a capitalist. I think that you need to be able to get something done. You need to see something at the end so you can make some money on it. It's not like I'm I'm not some conservative or anything, but I'm also not living in this fantasy land that thinks that kids don't need to make a living, that they don't need to understand their responsibilities.
0: Hmm. so 20th century <laughs> <laughs> no that, that that's really interesting so so i'm hearing that you actually supported the students to do this these projects in a structured way the active ingredients of that were kind of those check-ins where weekly you would sit down one-on-one with each of them and you said you were teaching 50 or 60 kids would you and you'd find the time for that check-in with every student
1: well yeah I mean, I, I'm not lecturing. I have plenty of time. And I would do it on Wednesdays because most kids wouldn't ditch school on Wednesday. That was the day that they would mostly show up. And, um, and I would start in the morning and they knew their time and would be a five-minute or 10-minute check-in. And I would get through, it's usually in teams of two, and I would get through the morning class and then I would get through the afternoon class. And then I would also do it other times too, but I needed to see them. I needed to to sit eye to eye with them and look at what they're doing and have them tell me about what they're doing and what they're learning. And I didn't want to do it in a big, I mean, doing it in a big space. All to, the only thing that's okay is a music concert and a sporting event where you can do it in a giant stadium and, and things would be good. But I have seen some really great musicians in my house playing guitar. And it's just me and a couple of other people. And it's so much better. And, I mean, it's just – so, I I think small is better.
0: Okay. And from a practical point of view, how did you record those meetings? Did each student have, like, their own work diary and you'd do the, like, this is we, what you're doing we this week? We tried and-
1: so many different things. As technology built up from the year 2000, I mean, I would write – I used to have a notepad from a, a, a restaurant pad and I would have a piece of carbon paper in there and I would write it. And I would give them one and I would keep one. And then I would started to write it in email or I would do air voice recording of what we promised we were going to do. And I would send it to them and they would say, I, cause before they're like, I didn't agree to that, like in the writing. And then, so I would do it on voice. And then they were like, is that really my voice? I'm like, yeah, it's your voice. Like I had little lawyers, little lawyery kids that would try and get out of it, but they, it's, you need accountability And you need to learn how to be an obsessive person that gets their job done. You don't learn that. You don't learn that just by being born. Like I can, I can use a skill saw and cut a straight line, and and people and the kids that I've been volunteering with, they're like, "How do you, you don't use a table saw?" I said, "Well, I do, but I could do it too with the skill saw." And they're like, "Well." How did you do that? I said it was years of practice. You're not born with it and getting done a project. People aren't born with getting projects done. You have to do it. And one place where project-based learning falls apart is when the teacher they don't they didn't do the project themselves first and they have no idea how to manage this project and then that's why other people say oh project-based learning is just a silly waste of time. And it absolutely can be. Jean Cluver says, "Bed she said bad PBL is worse than traditional education. And she's right. I, I I mean the kids will do nothing if if it's not organized. And it has to be organized. It's not some loosey goosey thing. I mean, I sound a little flaky maybe, but I am I'm a pretty organized, like neurotic guy. So uh, you have to be.
0: Yeah, totally so when you you said you work through lots of different iterations of recording those, who was doing what and where? What was the best version that you used the, out of that whole time? The voice tag. I would open it up and i say, uh, what
1: are you going to do for next week? And they would record it on their phone or on my phone. And I said, well, what do I expect? And they would say that and then I would send them the voice tag well, and I-, I would just save it. And it was great. And and they couldn't say that they weren't a part of it because it was their voice. and. And, and uh, it was that's, it was nutty. I mean, so many times they would throw away the paper and I was like, oh, wait, you threw it away? And then I would send the an email. And then their parents would come in and say, well, th- you know, and, but with the voice tag, I'm like, did you hear the voice tag? They're like, there's a voice tag? And I'm like, yeah, there's a voice tag.
0: That's so good. And there's some really good ways of doing that now as well. There's a company that's out. I'm just trying to find its name. Um, here it is. Uh, but basically what you can do now is you just There's like stickers you can buy or you can print it out for free and um, it's QR codes and you stick them on the student's work or stick them anywhere. Then you scan the QR code and you can do a recording, voice recording, video recording. And then for anyone to see that, they just scan the QR code themselves and they have access. So, you can actually have it at different points in their workbooks or even on their artwork. It's called Quicker, Quicker. Q-W-I-Q-R and i'll put that in the show notes for people as well um, but that's a really cool way so but that's really interesting to um to hear about um to hear about how important it was to get the students' voice in there cuz it's like they can't deny at that point that they said they were going to do that well um, now with with chat GBT, i guess you could do a deep fake and fake there that's true <laughs> um yeah discussion for another time though but yeah that's really that's really interesting um some something else that i thought was really powerful in the way you talked about how you were running your projects jeff was the kind the level of pre-work you got students to do so i mean you know people can say um projects are a waste of time but also like excursions can be a waste of time right you can take students to a museum or the zoo and they can just completely stuff around not engage at all so so what are some of the things so say you were taking a group of students to a museum what might you do before that excursion to make sure they actually engage so I was doing a project with Colleen O'Boyle who runs uh a uh, La Jolla
1: Country Day in San Diego. And she was the humanities teacher. I was the art teacher. And the kids were going to do this project called A Bite of the Norton Simon, where they were going to go to the Norton Simon Museum in Los Angeles and take and and paint just a bite, just a little bit. It came from Mordita. In Spanish, you say Mordita is a little bribe. But um, so a little bite of a painting. And then they were going to write a... Um, a narrative from the point of view of maybe the subject of the painting or maybe the artist and explain a little bit about the uh, artist. And so I went up in the summertime with my two kids and went all over the Norton Simon. And they were little kids at the time, but we took pictures, we got everything set. I hired a bus. I did, I made a painting of a bite of the Norton Simon. And I I remember it was one of the Van Gogh portraits with he only shows one ear. And I wrote about how he was Van Gogh's barber and you know kind of did a little research. It was super cute. And if I do say so myself and I showed this to my students. And then I had them go through the website, and they went through the website, and they had to find a painting. They had to get up and do a presentation for everybody in the class, a painting that they loved, a painting they didn't like, one that they thought was silly, one that they couldn't believe was in an art museum, and they got up, and they talked about that, and so they gave... They gave it took like three days for all the kids to talk to each other about the website and all the paintings they saw on the website. So when we got to the Norton Simon, and at the time I had to pay for the bus it was a thousand bucks. I didn't mind, and we got up there and they walked in and they were so excited. They're like, "Oh, I want to see my friend," and I'm like, "Your friend? Yeah, that painting over there. That's my friend now." And so we did work before they went on the webs. They went to the the. Um, field trip. We had them look into it. We had them, far. I call it farming the website, to look for something that's interesting to them, to find something that they're going to want to do there and that they knew it was important. They saw me do it. They saw pictures of my kids doing it. I even brought little Pablo and Felipe in and said, hey, what did you guys like? And they told them. And and I made sure that they knew it wasn't a waste of time. And one kid missed, um, he was absent that for three days, and he didn't do his presentation. And he walked in with this other kid and he said, hey, let's go and screw off in the garden. It's actually a beautiful garden, which would be fine, but they had work to do. And then he said, no, man, I don't want to just do nothing. I'm here. I want to see my paintings that I researched. And I was like, wow, that worked out great. But you have to do the work. It just doesn't organically happen. Nobody's born with it. Everybody has to work for something. And so teachers need to do the projects. They need to find out what's in it for them. And if I went to the Norton Simon and I said, Oh, I don't like this museum. There's not enough paintings. I would have then been able to go to another one. I wouldn't have said, Oh, let's do it anyway, or you never know. And and um and and it's just it's like it's it's one of those things. Uh I mean, I even did it when I took kids to Paris the first time. I went the spring break before with, I just had one kid at the time, and we went all over the place, and I wrote down where things were, and then we planned a trip, and I did it for like, I think I got 25 kids to Paris, and they didn't have to pay more than like 550 bucks for a week because I was such a hound about finding cheap things. And, and it wouldn't have worked if I didn't do the work ahead of time. So I have this video on my website. It's called Textbook Me Not. And it's the, in a nutshell, it's about most schools have textbooks, and there's a lot that goes into making a textbook. It could cost $20 million to make a textbook, to do all the research, to do all the sales. I'm like, I joke, steak dinners. And you have to get these textbooks approved. A lot goes into it. And in a school where you create your own curriculum, you need to do something you need to make something you need to do it you don't just do nothing and i've been i've actually been kind of all over the world and i've been to schools that we've inspired to do progressive education and i've walked into a lot of classrooms and nothing's going on they're just having a conversation. And then afterwards I said, well, what are you working on? They're like, well, you know, we're still trying to discover what we're interested in. And I'm like, well, how many weeks has it been? And they said five or six weeks. I said, well, what are you interested in? Well, I want to leave it to the kids. And it's like, you can't i mean it's absurd like say they don't know anything yet and you haven't given them a book or anything to look at like you can't you can't just sit around and do nothing and say you're being progressive that's not what progressive is progressive is finding another way into into the curriculum finding something individually for
0: each student
1: but it's not sitting on your ass doing nothing
0: yeah couldn't agree more, Jeff. Um, so, so I think that's a really powerful message about getting students to go deep, do the work before an excursion, ha- and have a have a friend to visit. Um, and it makes so much sense. It's like if you want to go on a holiday and see the pyramids, right? You're not you're not excited about seeing the pyramids if you've never heard of the pyramids and thought about you know what they mean. Looked at pictures, kind of the anticipation of the trip, kind of makes the trip in in many ways. Um, But also, there were some things you did that I thought were powerful. In another one of the excursions you talked about, you you asked students to, for example, find a work that shows repetition, shows classicism, shows mythology, uh, is not European. And so, you actually were getting them to – I imagine these are kind of themes or or styles of work that you'd already talked about and done some some work on. So, this is almost a transfer task for students. It's like – you know, we've looked at all these ideas and we've uh, approached them in different ways. How can we now see these in the real world or in, in a new set of artworks or something? And I was thinking um, one of the excursions that or field trips that some schools do here in Melbourne is they go to the theme park for a physics field trip. And so, you know, obviously, that the probability or the, the chance of that uh, or the dangers of that Within that, students just having a good time on the rides is pretty high. But thinking about, all right, we've already talked about potential and kinetic energy. Uh, Before we go, have a look at all the rides. Think about where you might see that. That kind of pre-work where you're actually taking the concepts from the curriculum and then seeing them in the real world is really powerful as well, I think.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so it's 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 making the experience richer. Uh, I just took my parents and my mother-in-law to visit my son who was in Florence for the semester. And I gave them... I, we're, we were we were going deep into art history, places that most people don't even know exist. We were at the Tape Palace in Mantova. And I sent them videos for them to watch because I didn't want them to show up with nothing. And these are 80-year-old people, but I know how cranky they get. They're very much like... Teenagers, to be honest, um, I hope he listens to this. Uh, the thing is, is that you know, doing the work ahead of time, doing, having expectations, is what the kids are looking for, and and it's it is a little bit more work, but it's so much more meaningful. It made my made my teaching career so exciting. I wrote that book, and 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 I've have tons of other books, and I have a website, and I still. I walked away from teaching in a totally different feeling. Like, I remember I used to take, like, with a little uh, lorry, I guess you guys would call it, people's file cabinets to their cars when they're retiring. And they had two drawers full of the worksheets they gave out. And then they retired, and they were, you know, unfortunately, would pass away in a year or two after they retired because they, they just missed being around people. Um, but all they had was that file cabinet and I have all this beautiful artwork I have I was excited about it and yeah I obsessed over it yeah it was I probably you know could have spent more time with my kids but I I feel like I did the right thing I cared about the people and I cared about them not just by saying the words I care about you it words are nothing I I helped them make things. I helped them do things. And I, you know, I put my money where my mouth was. I, I did it. And, and it didn't make me the perfect teacher, maybe not even a good teacher, but I've, I look back on it and I think, you know, I was honest about it.
0: Yeah, and and, I mean, that is really what shines through in your book, Jeff, and that's why I enjoyed reading it so much and I was was so keen to have a chat with you today. Something else that I think you did really well from kind of a teaching structural point of view to make the projects work was this idea of things like called mini lessons and you articulated this at multiple points in the book but I thought you might like to talk about one of the examples and that was the mini lessons. You talked about two of them um, that scaffolded students towards making videos or animations about the stories of refugees. So could you tell us a little bit about that project and then the mini lessons that you got students to do to kind of technically prepare them, I guess you could say, to actually be successful with the project?
1: Yeah, it's um, so many people have watched TV and and videos and 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 so everybody's kind of an expert on, you know, watching TV or watching films and movies and animations, but not a lot of people are good at making it. And the two scariest words in the human language are student film. I mean, it could be horrible and boring and just awful. So I wanted, so timing was an important thing. So they made, they took a Bob Dylan song and so most of them, some of them knew who he was, but I had his whole catalog and they had to put, um, were, they had to put pictures to his songs. And so it, this idea that there were so many visuals and he says so many words that they learned how to put pictures would pop up and then disappear when he would say the next word. So they learned about timing by doing that mini three minute mini lesson. And, and they also learned about like kind of clever Bob Dylan stuff. So is teaching them a little bit about like what I liked and, and but they learned about you know using images and how to how images should if you say something then that's when it should pop up on the screen and then the other uh mini lesson with that project was um they were how to do a uh for the to get into college they had to write an essay for um and it was uh you know, like basically a 500-word essay about themselves. And so we just turned that into a a six-word, I think it was six words, um, and they had to make an animation where six words about themselves would pop up. And so they learned to do the drawing and the watercolors in these animations, and then they put the sounds to it. So it was kind of inspiring them for something they're going to do in my class for the future by making this watercolored animation. And it was helping them for their college essays. So it was mini lessons that add up to what they're going to be doing. They're not just random mini lessons, random things that they may need to learn. Um, It's something that really fits together and builds on it. Same thing like with the the staircase to nowhere. They built a wonder they went around and they their first mini lesson, I handed them all rulers or yardsticks or meter sticks. And they went out and they defined a staircase. And they're like, what do you mean by that? I said, well you're gonna have to make a poster and you're gonna define a staircase. You tell me. And so they walked around our school area and they some kids took pictures and wrote on the pictures. Some kids wrote a poem about a staircase and that was a little staircase, but they defined a staircase. And then they made a one to 10 scale scale model, a one to five, and then a one to one staircase. And, and all the skills they learned built up into one final thing. It wasn't random things that are placed around. Nothing I ever had the kids do was just to keep them busy. That's I hate that. Boring people is torture. Hopefully I'm not boring any of your listeners, but I hate bo- being bored. I hate boring other people even more. And. And and kids feel trapped. They're trapped in the classroom. They're trapped in their chairs. And they're trapped when they can go to the restroom. I mean, imagine. I mean, as an adult, I don't know how old you are. I kind of can't figure it out. But I'm 55 years old, and I don't want anybody to tell me I can't go to the bathroom or I have to sit here for no reason for some arbitrary reason that I'm not even privy to. It's it's crazy. And I never did that to my
0: students because it's. It's a shitty thing to do. Mm. That's great. And I mean, what you're talking about here, Jeff, it's a perfect example of high quality instruction, right? One of Rosenshine's principles, uh, for those familiar or unfamiliar with it, is deliver content in small chunks with practice after each chunk right? That's what you did. You thought about, you know, what's the full picture? What are all the skills that students need to do? How do I break those skills down? How do I give a mini lesson and then give them opportunity to practice and master that so that they can build it all up together? It's just like, and, and with the whole idea of do it yourself and having a model, it's like, okay, let's use you know, worked examples. Let's use quality modeling. Give a good, good example of what quality looks like, and deconstruct that in terms of the success criteria. What are the features of this that make it successful? So it's it's so interesting to me. Um, you know, whether we're talking about explicit instruction or project-based learning, there's a there's a different thrust, but what makes it good and what helps students to be successful with it? There are so many parallels.
1: I agree, and and the yeah. the hardest thing is though to hear, I could go and I could hear, I was listening to you talk about, I could go to a conference somewhere and hear somebody talk about it, but it wouldn't do a bit of good unless I went and did it myself too. And I, I was going around and I was speaking in different places. I went down to Melbourne, I went to Holland, I went to New Jersey, I went to all these different places. And I honestly... The only people that I made a difference with, the handful of people that I changed over the years, were people that made something, that that did something with it. Um, and, and everybody else just got the afternoon
0: off. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and had um, chicken. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully hopefully tasty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You, you talked a little bit about teacher collaboration and how these projects were often cross curricular. Pretty much in pretty much all cases of your projects, that were cross curricular, or you were working with a teaching partner. He said sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes you end up being really good friends. Sometimes they end up they quit it. They quit the <laughs> school uh, at the end of it. One, why is teacher collaboration important? And two, what have you learned about making it work?
1: Well, what I learned about, it's important because you need to work with somebody else. It will make you a much better teacher if you have somebody there, basically like a director of a play, giving you notes every day, saying, oh, wow, this didn't work or that worked or the kids didn't understand what you were saying. You know, like you went off on a tangent and they lost it. So it's great having someone else there. So you're and you're showing how your subject area does exist in the real world. and. It was years later when I figured out what I was doing wrong. My rule was do the project yourself first. My new rule is get your partner teacher to do the project themselves too, because I would do it for every, I would even make the project for them, like they're part of the project and show them because I was so excited about it and they weren't as excited about it. So there's one super easy answer to this. Do the project yourself first. And if you're going to have a partner teacher, they need to do the project themselves too. That's simple. It's, it solves every problem, even discipline problems in class. If the teacher did the problem, the, the project themselves first, there wouldn't be discipline
0: problems. Mm, that for sure. Some, something else that came out. Was the idea of exposure to high art? Here's, here's an excerpt from your book. I tried to add little touches referencing high art and art history all over the school. I have always been disappointed in the pandering to students' pop art, pop music, and pop culture in schools. They get enough marketing at home. Why is high art important for students? The deal is with high art is.
1: I broke art down when I was teaching AP art history, which is. 28,000 BC to the present. Method, subject, and reason. And I remember it because it's my wife's initials too, MSR. But method was how it was made, what was the subject, and what was the reason it was created. And pretty much all art fits into MSR. Uh, it could be folk art, it could be traditional art, it could be, you know, uh, pop art, it could be any kind of art, any kind of creation has method, subject, and reason. However, fine art has influence. Who influenced that artist or that art form? And who did they then influence? It's in this canon of art. And it doesn't have to be Western. It could be, it could be from all over the world. This idea of appropriation is bad. Well, yeah, I could see getting dressed up. If I dressed up as a maybe as a matador for Halloween, it wouldn't look good and maybe I'm appropriating someone else's ideas, but appropriation in art is it's not appropriation in a negative way. It's it's seeing what's done somewhere else and how that influenced you. And and this idea that art should just be segmented and that the only people that should do this art are the people that were born doing it. That's saying that art should only be folk art. And I don't think that's right. I think you need to look at things around us. I don't want to go back in time. I don't want to separate everybody out. You need to look at what happened before and how you were influenced. And that's not just art, but that's that's like music, that's religion, that's politics, that's society. It's being a good member of society, to understand where ideas came from. And then what are you going to do with those ideas? Are you going to change them? You're going to leave them the same? How are you going to be a a person in the society? And art art is at the cutting edge. Art has always been there. When there's been a change in in an idea in the world, it's because art did it first. Um, And so... I think, I think that having high art I, I idea that art that has been influenced or has influenced other people is important to see everywhere around a school. And you know, if you go into most schools, it's, it's little eight and a half by eleven pencil and paper art placed up by, in, a, in, a, in a display case. Art should be everywhere it should be like ubiquitous and, and at high tech high it d- definitely was and it still kind of is um, I, I think that it gives people that excitement it makes you feel like you're in a special place when I go into an art museum that's how I feel and so it, you need to have that to feel different mm.
0: that's that's great Jeff a, a beautiful answer Jeff, what are three books that you have really enjoyed, and that listeners might be curious to check out?
1: Well, one time when I saw that question, I was like, uh, I said one time in an interview, don't, don't read books about education. Read books about your subject area, because y- you need to be inspired by what you're. The most important thing is to be psyched on what you're teaching, not on some gobbledygook. But my favorite three favorite books. Um, well, any Walter Mosley book. Um, I read 47, and it was about kind of time travel and slavery. And it was amazing. I wish I read it after I stopped teaching, but I would have every student read it. So Walter Mosley's 47, Herman Hess's Siddhartha. And I had my students every year, even if they weren't, even if I wasn't teaching English, they read it every year in my uh, uh, art classes and in every class I taught. Siddhartha, and then Vana gets "Welcome to the Monkey House," where we did a project on that too. And uh, those are yeah. short stories that he wrote from after World War II to, uh, I guess, till about
0: sixty-eight. Beautiful. And I will definitely read Siddhartha. I'd already put that put that down for, for, whilst reading through your book, Jeff. I yeah. can see you placed a lot of emphasis on it, so it is on the list. Um, something else you mentioned in your book that uh, I've been getting more and more interested in recently is, uh, is jazz. I, I wanted to also ask, what are your favourite three jazz albums? Well,
1: Coltrane 58 just came out like 2 years ago and it was unreleased John Coltrane from 1958 sessions and it's like it's there's like 50 songs and it was like brand new Coltrane that I had never heard before and he and he had such a sweet story and and he seemed like such a great guy and and it really kind of comes through in the way he plays um I also like uh, Scott Joplin ragtime piano. Um, It's so it's from 110 years ago now, probably or 115 years ago, and it just it has this clunky, beautiful uh, ragtime piano that that that. I would have hated it when I was younger and now I find it just like kind of lovely. And, and I think even the entertainers on that, like this, it's kind of, we think of that as cheesy or, 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 um, you know, overplayed, but I just, I just love that record and it's just Scott Joplin playing the piano and then, uh, felonious monk alone. And it's called monk alone. And, his refrain is amazing. I, I've never seen his the the his music, but he doesn't play so many keys. And just to have that refrain to to let to skip a note, and but that silence makes the note. And so. That's that's this idea of composition, and composition's in everything. It's in writing, it's in music, it's in art, and what you don't see, what the refrain is, can be beautiful and interesting, and it leaves a space for for other people to come in.
0: So, those are my three favorite jazz albums. That's beautiful, Jeff. And I haven't listened to any of them, so I'm looking forward to, to diving in. Something else you mentioned earlier today that, that I that I hadn't told you I would ask you, but that you, you piqued my interest you said you had a real interest in poetry as well um traditionally as well so what are some, what are some poems you 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 are particularly fond of
1: um it's hard to say i I feel like I was into into like traditional poetry like a, a minimalist poetry uh uh Sam Cornish. He was the poet laureate of Boston for like 10 or 15 years. And he wrote just these beautiful little poems with maybe five or six words. And he just had this great way of speaking. And I took a class with him one time and I thought he was just fantastic. And, um, but now I, because my kids are in college and I sit with them and, and I do this thing where I paint and my younger son reads and he's read to me like four or five Kerouac books. And while I'm now I'm older, I'm 10 years older or eight years older than he was when he died. Um, I love the idea of the way he wrote about things, the way he talked about things. So, so prose poetry. So, I'm I've been real down with uh, with Kerouac and um, and even Allen Ginsberg and 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 uh, I just haven't really gotten. It's hard for me to get into contemporary poetry because of my kind of fear of pop art. I mean, I've been. I've I went to uh I went to pick him up when he was in F- Florence and uh we went to France and instead of going to museums we went to places that inspired famous artists so we went to Albi where that's where Toulouse-Lautrec was from we went to um Barbizon. And that's where the Barbizon school painters, like Millet and, and Corbet painted. And we walked around the forest, great bouldering there too. Uh, half the people were out there with that. But I would happen upon a spot and go, oh my God, I've been here before. I've been to this painting. And then we went to Giverny and saw where Monet lived. And we went to Auvers, where uh, where uh, Van Gogh was buried. And And I thought, oh my God, like, he wasn't that crazy. Like this place over has these nutty fields and these amazing, weird churches. And he kind of just painted what he saw. He wasn't that nuts. And so going to see where what inspired other people's art is is fascinating to me. And I've been to the museums. I mean, to say, oh, I've been to Paris so many times. But I've been there a bunch of times. And to get to go to where these artists had their inspiration, and they didn't hold back. They went for it. If they wanted to use bright red a t- ton, they did it. Yellow. I mean, I hardly have any yellow in my paintings, and I'm just horribly jealous by how much yellow that these Impressionists did. So the fact that I'm 55 years old, it's 2023, and I'm just like captivated by Impressionism again is, it blows me away. So you're, and I, and I think that's, You know, like, those are the things that in life, you you know, like, your identity is always changing. That's what I'll leave you with this. But uh, this one teacher had these kids write this 10 page identity papers about their identity, and they were 17 years old. And she said, none of them were any good. And I said, well, "Well, let me see yours that you wrote." And she said, "Well, I didn't. I didn't write one. I'm the teacher." And I'm like, "Oh my god, I have. I could write maybe a quarter page on my identity. I have no identity. It keeps changing. Like this. This idea that we're going to make kids write about their identity. It's like, it's it's preposterous. So I think just doing the project yourself first and being honest with people and and being honest with yourself and and." You you gave me these questions and it says advice to your younger teacher self, and it says um, teach because you want to. It is charity. If you worked as hard as you need to, you would get it, to do a good job. You would get paid horribly and leave teaching wanting more. And I I want more, but I'm glad I left before
0: before I did it. Well, I guess we should end this. Uh- conversation wanting more than Jeff Robin uh, rather than going on too long. But thank you so much for your time today, Jeff. I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed your book as well. Uh, I must, project-based learning is something that I have dipped in and out of um, over the years and I have seen it done really, really poorly, I must say. I've also read books that are pretty Unpractical, or when I read them, I think I, I can't see how that would actually help this to work. But when I re- read your book, I got a really, really good sense of how much you put into it, how, how actually structured it was, how much passion you brought, and therefore how it can actually have, have an amazing effect. Um, you know, things like to, to recap some of the main things I'll take away the idea of starting with something you're passionate about. Doing it yourself, which we've heard lots today, but I, it can't be emphasized enough. Uh, the idea of weekly check-ins and that kind of nuance of using voice messages for them to make them work and see seeing your task as that of a manager is really powerful as well. The pre-work before excursions or field trips to get students really engaged. Uh, the idea of mini lessons that really chunk down the, the, the constituent skills of a project. And, and above all this, the idea of just, just quality models all the way through is, is really powerful. Some some other things that came out to me today, uh, I thought it was really powerful, really beautiful. So, you, when you said that the teaching was your art form and, and the kids were your medium, uh, I thought it was a really nice way. And if we think about the title of your book, Teach Like an Artist, well, I mean, that's, that's a perfect way to put it, isn't it? And just the idea that you need to be obsessed with it to be a great teacher, and you need to be obsessed. More generally, uh, to be to be great at anything in life, I think is really powerful as well. So, Jeff, thank you for the, the work you've done over the years in um in supporting and inspiring students. Thanks for inspiring me through your book. Hopefully, we've inspired some more in the in the podcast. And I know that you've uh, got many more years at fifty five of exciting projects ahead. Uh, and so, yeah, hopefully, we can stay in touch. I'd love to hear to to see what what more you get up to. Definitely. Thanks so much. It was really fun. Hey all, it's Ollie again, one more thing before you take off, and that is EdThreads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My weekly free newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary of teaching and learning that you get access to for free. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show, and that I've discovered from scouring the internet and other sources. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to and only pass on the very best ones to you. So if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe to get Ed Threads. Stop what you're doing right now and sign up before you forget. That's ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week, and until next time, keep learning.